This morning's text is taken from Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 42. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew pocket, so you can follow along. That's Luke 11, 37 through 42. While he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms. Give for alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There are personality types like Eeyore and Puddle Glum and Charlie Brown who almost always see the dark side of everything and who have a lot harder time being hopeful in any circumstance than other people have. But if you have a a theology like mine, then pessimism becomes a living contradiction of God all the time. And you can't keep yourself in it very long if you live according to your biblical Theology. And that theology puts Isaiah 64, 4 and Romans 8 right at the middle of life. Isaiah 64, 4 says, What God is like you who works for those who wait for him? And of course, parts of Romans 8, God works all things together for good for those who love him and nothing Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not financial shortfall, not broken relationships, not terminal diseases, not war in the Mideast. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if you have a theology like that, then you just can't be a Puddle Glum or an Eeyore or a Charlie Brown consistently. You have to break out of it real fast. Which means that as I was reflecting on money and financial stewardship, my mind mainly turned toward what God might be pleased to do if we united together in this church in the coming year in a remarkable new way of commitment. And what I want to do is share with you some things that came to my mind that broke me out of uh, an Eeyore mode into a, a Paul, Jesus, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke mode. Ten things that I see as trajectories in our church that fill me with longing that if we were to unite in a new kind of commitment in the funding of this ministry, God might do incredible things among us. 
10 trajectories that have encouraged me as I've reflected over the past years and into the future. Number one, God is teaching us a lot about the Holy Spirit in these days. More than we've ever known, I believe, about the gifts and about the graces of the Holy Spirit. And above all, making us more hungry than we've ever been for all the fullness of God. And that's crucial. I don't see that changing. Number two, one of the evidences of this growing commitment to the Holy Spirit's power is a growing ministry of prayer. I see it in our small groups. I see it in the largest and most extended night of prayer with the greatest number of people. I see it in our prayer teams that are available now at the end of each service. And by the way, there's another prayer training a session coming up on Saturday, February 2nd from 1 to 5 in the afternoon for others who'd like to be a part of the prayer ministry. Third, the birth and growth and then church-wide affirmation of 2000 by 2000 last year was a mark of remarkable blessing upon our church and a trajectory that will govern the life of this church, Lord willing, for the next 10 years. And I believe God's smile is on it, broad and big. Number four, all of these three have resulted in a much wider, deeper, more serious uh, engagement of unbelieving relatives and friends and colleagues and neighbors in discussions about Jesus and in invitations to the Lord's house. I have seen it. We had uh, 20 uh, reports of professions of faith among our members through our members last year, that number, I believe, by the middle of this decade, God means to be at least the number we hear converted each month, not each year, which would bring us to our harvesting goal of 2,000 by 2,000. While I was writing this down yesterday, one of our young men called me, and it was so encouraging, and it's just so indicative of what God is doing, even behind the scenes when I don't know about it. He called me and he said, that he had felt led of the Lord to start an evangelistic Bible study at work, and five men uh, said they'd like to be a part of it. That's the sort of thing that's happening. Number five. So far, since the beginning of 2000 by 2000, we've sent out 91 of our people under the terms of 2000 by 2000. Sixty people are in the nurture program preparing for vocational Missionary service, $150,000 of next year's budget increase is not fat in any way for ourselves. It's pure out-and-out new missionary candidates that we're taking on. Number six, as I analyze the attendance patterns of recent years, I found something remarkably encouraging. For example... There are different ways you can handle statistics, you know. You can shuffle them all around, make them look discouraging or encouraging. But here's one way to make the statistics look encouraging to me, and I'll mention why after I give it. In 1987, there were uh, nine Sundays in which we had over 1,000 people in our three services. In 1988, there were 18 Sundays in which there were over 1,000 people. In 1989, there were 20 Sundays in which there were over 1,000. Last year, there were 22 Sundays in which there were over 1,000 people. Now, the reason I take that as an encouraging thing is, number one, we just about took away all the parking there was to have last year. We made it as hard for people to come to Bethlehem as we could possibly make it. 
last year because we had no choice. And I left the church for four months. And as I look back on that, what it says to me is that the prosperity and growth of this church is not excessively dependent on parking or me, which is real encouraging. Number seven. Last Wednesday night at the Ask class, there were 26 people who are investigating membership. Which means that not only do we have people who kind of cruise through on Sunday morning checking us out, but there are people who begin to feel like there's strength and there's hope to be had in the ongoing fellowship of this church, and they then want to move on toward membership. And that's a continuing thing as we've seen. Number eight, the small group ministry last year was a wonderful success in my judgment. We have much to do. There were over 600 people in small groups. And the most encouraging thing is not so much the number as the stories that were told of the incredible investment of love in people in the midst of crisis from their small groups. You know those stories. Many of them were quite public. And I just thank God for how many of you are engaged seriously in praying with one another and supporting each other, studying with one another and focusing on various ministries in the small groups. Number nine, I suppose I should mention that new building behind me. It's an unmistakable testimony to this city that we are here to stay in this neighborhood. Old Bill Berg, the retired pastor of Augustana Lutheran, I, I meet him every now and then as we cross paths in various services. And he gave his life to this district and this area down at Augustana for several decades. And he came to me last time at the uh, 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 was Thanksgiving service. And he said, oh, John, I love that building. I love that building. John, this is God's country. This is God's country. This is where the church belongs. Thank you for building that building. That's the way the old man, Bill Berg, feels about our new sanctuary. And not only will it enable us to triple our size on Sunday morning with more and more worshiping people, but the foyer will open its way so that you don't have to go crunching out of here, banging through the halls to your car or your classroom, but you'll be able to deal with people, talk with people. There'll be room. You can do the kinds of ministries after and before service that so many of us know are important. And then my final thing that I've been reflecting on is the radio program, which began last Sunday afternoon at 3.30. It's, it's weekly, not daily, by the way. Somebody told me they turned in every day and couldn't get it this week. <laughs> That's because it's not on during the week. It's 3.30 Sunday afternoon and KTIS AM. Now, I don't know what the Lord might do with that radio Message, But I tell you, it was a blessing to my heart to get a letter from one of our older members this week and thank me for it because they couldn't get out and they heard worship. And that's one of the purposes that it has. And uh, I just think it's part of the overall blessing that God in this decade is meaning to give to these cities, not just through Bethlehem. I believe the blessing of God is being poured out on many, many evangelical churches that believe the Bible and exalt Jesus Christ. And I just want to be a little part of the big movement that God is pushing forward in this decade in these cities and around the world. Now, I don't know what all of that means to you. But I do know what it means to me. And I'll put it in a very personal context. I turned 45 on Friday, just like David turned 45 today, which shows you that I'm the senior pastor. But I turned 45 on Friday, and last Sunday, 
my best friend in seminary, Tom Province, died of cancer as a pastor in Louisiana at 45. And whenever the year rolls over and your friends at 45 even begin to die, you really stop and say, is this a good investment? Is Bethlehem a good investment for the next 20 years? And again and again, uh, the Lord, I believe, has given me the answer, it's a real good investment. It's a good place to invest. It's a good people to invest. It's a good decade vision to invest in. And so as I reflected on my life, as my year rolled over and the odometer went on, the answer came back again. It's a good place. It's your place. Go for it. I hope that I can now this morning call you in that context to a new level of commitment, hope-filled commitment financially. What might God be pleased to do in us and through us as a church if we all together, now underline those words, all together made the grace of tithing the floor on which we stand together and the grace of untold liberality the ceiling way high up over our heads. What might God do if every earning person in this room, from the little child who gets an allowance to the oldest person on a pension, would tithe as the floor of our financial commitment and then seek ways of radical liberality as the seed. That's my question to you this morning. Is it an investment for you worthy of that kind of commitment? I want to call many of you to that. The reason I say many of you is because I know that many of you already tithe and go beyond the tithe. Bethlehem uh, is a good giving church, a very good giving church. I'm more convinced of that right now than I was a week ago. Um, Experts like Doug Anderson of the Nehemiah Ministries tell us that in average evangelical churches, this statistic holds true almost right across the board. 20% of the people pay for 80% of the need. 30% of the people pay for the rest of it, and 50% give nothing. That's true almost right across the board in evangelical churches. Now, the statistic that came back to me a couple of weeks ago was that Bethlehem is better than that. Namely, only 346 of our people gave nothing last year. That's 30%, not 50%. When I heard that, I tell you, I did a tailspin. I said, what? And then I said a few other things. Now, I asked for an anonymous accounting of those people. I don't know who they are or anything, and I don't want to know. And I got that this week, and I studied it. My, My emotions have now lifted much, much higher. 
because as I analyzed who these 346 people are without knowing any of their names, there were some very, very encouraging things. Uh, on those lists that I received, under the category of active attender, there were only 21. Only 21 of those 346 are active attenders. The others all break down between non-resident, no longer attending, youth and student, watch care, elderly, and missionaries. And the numbers in those are not huge. The biggest numbers are non-resident and no longer attending, which means we have, of course, some cleanup to do on our roles. But that's every big downtown church has that problem. So here's my conclusion. As I'm preaching about, about tithing this morning, I do not assume that I'm speaking to a room full of non-givers. I just don't assume that. Maybe one or two or half a dozen in this room gave no recorded gift last year. I don't know. I'm assuming that I'm giving to, I'm talking to two kinds of people this morning. One are some really big, strong, sacrificial givers. And two, people who are giving and are wondering and praying and open to whether they're giving biblically, whether they're giving what they ought to give. And here at the beginning of the new year are probably reflecting on was last year's way the way it should be. And so I'm going to assume the best and simply preach to those who are open to the word and are seeking God's will for how to handle your finances. And with that, we turn to Luke 11:42. Just one verse. And I want to see whether Jesus speaks as clearly to you as he did to me this week from this verse. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint, rue, and every herb. Those are two kinds of spices plus an herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, what the Pharisees were doing, uh, they would take even from their gardens the smallest little spices and the smallest herbs, and they would take a tent and take it to the temple. Tithing means, let's get our definition down here now, because some people sling this word tithing around as though it meant giving. Anything you give is your tithe. Tithing means 10% of your income, all your income, whatever you get. Tithing, like herbs and spices and whatever, but income. Ten percent, one-tenth, one slash ten, one zero. It's ten percent. That's what tithing means. Given to the house of the Lord or to the place of worship. Now, these Pharisees were doing that. They were doing that. They were tithing. Tithing very meticulously and very, very carefully. And they were neglecting, Jesus says, justice and the love of God. In other words, uh they were focused on religious practices and they were so caught up with religious practices that their lives in the personal relationship with God and personal relations with how people were being treated around them, zip. They were blowing it. They were blind to the way people were being treated and the way their own hearts were relating to God. And so God says, Jesus says, they are under condemnation. That's what the word woe means. Woe to you Pharisees. It's a terrible thing when religious practice becomes an end in itself. When tithing becomes an end in itself and blinds us to justice and 
love to God. Now, two comments about this text. Number one, Jesus teaches very plainly here, I believe, as well as in the parallel in Matthew, that there are more important things than tithing. Let's get that straight. There are more important things than tithing. Woe to you Pharisees, you neglect justice and the love of God. The first commandment and the second commandment, you are blowing. There are bigger issues than tithing, just like learning the subject matter in school is a bigger issue than making A's on tests. There might be a correlation, but there might not be. The second thing Jesus is saying, the first was there are more important things than tithing. The second one he's saying is tithing is not unimportant. It should not be neglected. Let's read that. These things, namely justice and the love of God, you ought to have done without neglecting the others, namely the tithing of your spices and your herbs. In other words, let everything in your life happen in the context of justice and love for God, caring about how people are treated and caring about the glory of God. Let these two great concerns consume you. Then your tithing will not be a curse. It will be a blessing. Your tithing will not be a blinder and a justification for selfishness in the world. Rather, it will be an expression of love to God and commitment to his cause. Now, what I see that spoke to me so loudly from this verse was this. Justice and tithing have to do with my money. That's real important to see. That's real important. If you want to fight the injustice of the killing of the unborn in our society, it will cost you money. And it will take money, millions and millions of dollars, out of the hands of abortionists when you take their commodity of the bodies of babies away from them. It's a money issue. Or, if you are committed to alleviating the injustices done to those who have less advantage than you in the world, suppose your heart is burdened and you want to engage to alleviate the injustices where there are people who are kept from having the advantages of food or home or health care or literacy or freedom, it will cost money. Justice issues are money issues. Now, that was very, very uh, important for me to see as I read this text. You can't be committed to justice. You can't be committed to justice and think that everything over the tithe is for my comfort. What is everything over the tithe for? This text is very plain. Everything over the tithe is for the love of God and justice toward men. Or to put it more carefully and broadly, everything over the tithe is for you to meet your needs and have an abundance for every good work. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 
Everything over the tithe is meant for you to develop a wartime lifestyle that is consumed not with luxuries and increasing comforts, but is consumed with justice and consumed with love for the glory of God. That's what the 90% is for. So don't, don't leave this morning and say, John taught that you're to give 10% of your income to the house of the Lord and go on and buy all kinds of trinkets and toys and goodies and luxuries with the other 90% because you've done your duty with the 10. Jesus is not saying big issues like justice are important and little issues like money are less important. Justice is a money issue. He was saying, get your heart right first towards God. Love God. Get your heart right second towards people in need, especially the most helpless and the most oppressed and the most abused. Get your heart right towards those. And then your tithing to the house of the Lord will not be a sham camouflage for selfishness. It will be an expression of the overarching burden of your life that God be glorified and people be blessed. Therefore, I see three Very profound teachings in this text. Number one, love God. Number two, care about justice toward people. And number three, tithe to the house of the Lord. Do not neglect tithing. Now, I want to close with six very brief incentives. I don't know how many. I would just love to have a hand raising to see how many are not yet tithing, but I don't consider that to be a biblical thing to do, to ask that kind of thing in public. I don't think the Lord wants anybody to brag about it. But I'm sure there are many here who, for one reason or another, don't tithe. And so, if you haven't been persuaded yet that what Jesus is doing is calling you to tithe to the house of the Lord and to engage in a life devoted to justice and the love of God with the rest of your life and money, then here are six more reasons why you should. The first one is simply a repetition. Tithe because Jesus said, don't neglect this duty. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6.46. Number two, if you are prone to say this morning... Uh, We live under grace, not under law. Tithing is part of law, and therefore it is not a Christian duty. If you're prone to say that, think this. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. In fulfilling some things, like the sacrificial system, they ceased. But I ask you, What does a fulfilled tithe look like? How does more grace affect your love for worship in the house of the Lord and the ministry of Christ? How does more grace affect your ability to trust God for what you need to live on? How does more grace lower the floor of generosity laid by the law? Explain to me. You 
who would use grace to justify diminishing the duty of a person before the cross rather than before Mount Sinai. Oh, I believe there's new power. I believe there's new joy. I believe there's new knowledge of the goodness of God. But for the life of me, I cannot conceive of how those who have experienced more grace would lower their commitment to the house of the Lord. Number three. Deuteronomy 14.23 says that one of the purposes of tithing was, quote, that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Tithe that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Many of us have discovered that when you put God first in your money, he suddenly becomes first everywhere. You know why? It's sort of the flip side of the love of money is the root of all evil. Think about this. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Flip that over. If your money then becomes sanctified by the first fruits going to the Lord, I think you can almost say the reverse. The letting go of money in obedience to Jesus is the root of much reverence and much righteousness. The Lord is revered more when we obey the Lord with our money in this way. Number four, bringing God the first fruits of your income in a tithe. That is, taking that 10% off, just writing that check immediately before you write any other check. Bringing that reminds you, paycheck after paycheck after paycheck, that it's all God's. The rest of it is God's. These are first fruits, like the first fruits of the harvest, cut off Offered up to the Lord as a reminder, it's all his for justice and the love of God. And this I take off, dedicate to him as a special offering to the house of the Lord. Now I will more keenly remember that the rest of my spending will honor him and show love to him and bless people and bring justice in the world. Number five, tithing teaches real nitty gritty trust in God. If you don't tithe because you wonder how you can afford it, then I believe you don't trust God enough. It's a trust issue. If you say to me, if you come to me after the service today and say, you mean I'm supposed to tithe rather than pay my bills? I would say to you, you tithe. You just tithe. And your bills will get paid. More on that in a minute. It's a trust issue. Tithing means believing the promise, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Number six, and finally, tithing will bring great blessing from God into your life in many ways. I have thought much about Malachi 3.10, trying to ask seriously, is there anything that has happened in the course of redemptive history? Is there anything that happened in the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection? Is there anything about his reigning in heaven and his coming in glory and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that would make Malachi 3.10 not valid today? And I can't think of anything that would strip this promise from my inheritance. 
Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. There's the promise. I see no reason for it to be rescinded and say, well, that's an Old Testament promise. Jesus doesn't promise that. Oh, he does. Just read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Way and beyond, you will always have enough that you might have enough for yourself and an abundance for good deeds. If we are obedient with our money, spend it the way he says and give it the way he says. Now, I'm going to close with a challenge to you because I believe in this promise so deeply. I called David Michael, who is the head or the staff liaison over our uh, helping hand fund where we help people in financial need. And I said, David, here's what I'm going to say tomorrow. Is it okay? He said, I love it. Say it. All right. If you do not tithe, here's the promise I will make to you. It's a commitment, a financial commitment. If you will start tithing with this next paycheck, I'll get mine, I think, on Tuesday. If you'll start tithing with your next paycheck and write 10% of it off, right off the top, and do that to the end of February. And secondly, if you will ask one other person, it could be one of our prayer team here at the front after this service, pray with me that God would help me, because this is risky in my financial condition. Pray with me that God will help me spend right and live right and do right, that this won't get me in trouble. My commitment is, if you are in worse financial condition for having given that tithe at the end of February, we will give any amount of it back to you that you want from the Helping Hand Fund. And I don't think we'll have to pay off one dime. But we will. We will. Because we help people all the time in financial distress. That's how deeply I believe Malachi 3.10. He will not let you down. And therefore, I feel the Lord just saying to me, repeat these words, John, on my behalf. Put me to the test. Test me to see if I will not open the windows of heaven in your life. Test me to see whether one of the reasons you're in such financial distress might be that you have not obeyed the Lord when he said, do not neglect the others. Now, our prayers will be here at the front afterwards. It may be that... Uh, you just feel so thankful for God's blessing, you just want to pray with them. Or it may be any burden you brought into this service, they're willing to pray about anything. So take advantage of it if the Lord puts it in your heart. Let's bow in prayer. Father, if you were to bless this message unto its appointed end, what we could do as a church... Lord, our trustees are really struggling right now with whether $150,000 for more missionaries next year when we missed our commitment last year is good stewardship. And Lord, we need a word from you about this because the money's there. It's there. And I just pray earnestly that you would use this message for the cause of missions. That's my biggest burden, Lord. That 2,000 by 2,000 
and all the young people being called into missionary service and those entering the ministry, passing through this church and being supported by us would not have to be told we can't support at the level that we had committed. Lord Jesus, grant, I pray, that you would take these words, cause them to go home, and may we all link hands and make the grace of tithing the floor on which we stand together and the grace of untold liberality the ceiling over our heads. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.